Happy All Hallows' Eve, everyone, and welcome to You Don't Have to Yell. I'm your host, Dan Sally, and we're recording live in Dedham, Massachusetts, the birthplace of modern democracy. Uh, before we get started, I'd like to thank the band Fellertack for giving us the okay to use their music for the show, and if you've ever wondered what it would look like if the Foo Fighters and Iron Maiden paired up and hired a black metal singer who only spoke Norwegian to front them, Kvelertak is the band for you. That's K-V-E-L-E-R-T-A-K. I love them. Check them out. And with that, we're on the final episode of Gun Month. Now, last week, we spoke with attorney Jason Gaida and learned the issue of gun ownership is often more about someone's identity as a full and free citizen than it is about the multitude of other reasons people give for why they own a gun. And so, to explore this idea further, I asked Mike Weiser, a.k.a. Mike the Gun Guy, to join me and discuss. Now, he spent 35 years as a retailer, wholesaler, and importer of firearms, worked as a firearms trainer. He's an NRA life member and also a PhD in economic history. Uh, so say what you will about gun month, but we've had some very interesting people over the past few weeks. Uh, he runs the site, MikeTheGunGuy.com, and I thought there was no one more fitting to dig into the identity of the American gun owner. So he has some interesting insight into the mentality of gun owners and the gun debate in general. And rather than tell you what he's going to say, I'm just going to let you hear it for yourself. So I'll be back at the end with closing comments. Until then, here's Mike the Gun Guy. Can you just tell me a little bit about your background and about your sure. sort of expertise in guns? I was uh, born in Washington, D.C. in 1944, moved to New York in the mid-50s. Uh, in 1967 or 68, when I was just getting going, uh, my, uh, I went down and spent the summer with my great uncle in North Carolina, who was a manufacturer of guns. And, of course, I always loved guns as a kid. Mm-hmm. So that kind of got me into the gun business, so to speak. I spent the summer working in his little gun factory. Mm-hmm. And from then on, uh, even though I was a university professor and then uh, went into uh, for-profit fundraising and ultimately into IT, I was always involved one way or another in the gun business. I've been a retailer, a wholesaler, an importer, manufacturer of guns. Uh, I currently own, I guess, 60 or 70 guns. That kind of makes me a little light. <laughs> I'm a gun nut, true and true. I'm also a yellow dog Democrat. So I look at it from both sides. I also happen to be an endowment uh, life member of the NRA, which means I give them enough money that no matter what I say about them, they can't throw me out. <laughs> <laughs> and I do consulting work for all of the national gun control organizations as well as law firms that are dealing with gun litigation uh, and the public health groups. Uh, I do this for free only because I know a lot about guns and I want to make sure that when people do research or write about guns that they're trying to align what they say with what is true. Got it. Now, where, where do you live anyway? I live in Massachusetts outside really? of Amherst. I did not expect you to be from Massachusetts, Mike. <laughs> well, actually, I've only been living up here for about 24 years. <laughs> okay. All right. All right. 
you know, my understanding is the process for getting a license to carry in the state of Massachusetts goes above and beyond what you'd see in a number of other states. And so, you know, that of course includes uh, filling out an application, going through a background check, uh, having an appointment with local law enforcement and so on. But, you know, you tell me like you're the expert here and obviously you're living in Massachusetts. Like, what do you feel about the gun laws in this state? I think the gun laws in this state overwhelmingly are gun laws that are designed to regulate how the people who are who are licensed to sell guns sell them. The laws that regulate the um, behavior and requirements of gun owners are not terribly complicated. Mm-hmm. And because Massachusetts is one of the few states in which the license to own a gun, and in most cases to carry around a gun concealed, well, a few states in which it's the same license. In fact, the requirements for background check and the interview and all that stuff um, are pretty mild. Most states have a require that to, that to get a license to walk around with a gun, a concealed gun, license to carry, you have to go through a, a separate process from any processing that they might have as required just buying a gun. Mm-hmm. Massachusetts combines those two. There's nothing to it. As a matter of fact, anybody who wants to get a gun license in Mass, all they have to do is go down to the police department and say, to the police department in the town in which they live, <clears throat> because the issuing authority is the chief in your town, but it's usually somebody in the department who does extra work. All they got to do is go down and say, uh, what do I need to do? And they'll hand you a piece of paper with the three or four steps you have to take. And that's it. Okay. Got it. It's nonsense. Got it. Now, by the way, uh, you have to be talking to somebody who taught the required safety course. I stopped doing it a couple of years ago to over 7,000 mass residents. So I know this process from end to end. Okay. Mm-hmm. And the required safety course, the required safety course is a joke. It's nothing. You sit there for an hour and you listen to some guy read bumbling something out about, you know, a book. And then you take a little test. Of course you pass it yeah. because you paid to take the course. So nobody fails. And in Massachusetts, are you ready for this? Yeah. This course does not require any live fire at all. In other words, you can walk into a gun shop after you get your license. You can buy a very lethal weapon. You can load it up with military-style ammo. You can walk around with that gun in your pocket without ever having fired a gun. So the idea that we're letting people have license to carry to protect themselves with a weapon for which they do not have to show any proficiency at all, (laughs) it's a joke. So do the gun laws in Massachusetts then, do they actually do the job of keeping guns out of the hands of wrong people, or do they just do a great job at keeping people who work in firearm training schools and law practices focusing on gun law employed? The major major law in in this state Mm-hmm. was a law that was passed in 1999. And basically what this law did, they had the, the, the license law was there, was already on the books. Mm-hmm. Okay. 
And of course, anytime you buy a gun from a dealer, you have to go through the FBI background check, which the dealer does right at his counter by either going, using his computer or picking up the phone. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, and Massachusetts is pretty good at making sure that the, that the uh, information that the FBI uses from Massachusetts is pretty good. It's, it's up to date. Mm-hmm. Plus, again, in mass, you have to get a, a, you know, it's like getting a driver's license. The gun license in mass is just like the driver's license. You get it once, you renew it every five years. You don't actually have to own or buy a gun, okay? But if you want to, you need the license. On the other hand, once you get the license and you walk into a shop, the dealer makes sure that the license is valid, the state license, by uh-huh. doing a, a, you know, a quick little thing on his computer. Okay. And then you can buy every gun in the store right then. And you only do one background check with the FBI. Okay. Mm-hmm. So, so those law, that law was in effect in 99. Mm-hmm. What they added in 99 was a law that basically tried to make guns safer from being misused by children by creating a list of guns whose design included certain child safe features mm-hmm. such as um, whether or not you could tell if the gun was loaded without actually looking inside the gun, whether you had to pull a certain amount of pressure on the trigger to fire the gun, a few other things like that. Mm-hmm. So if you want to, if you're a manufacturer and you want to put a new gun, sell a new gun in mass, or if you're a dealer and you want to sell, you know, a gun in mass, the gun has to be on that approved list. Now, okay. so what we have is on the one hand, the law that says we're going to keep guns out of the wrong hands by doing background checks, blah, 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 blah. Uh-huh. And the other law that says we're going to keep guns out of the wrong hands, by making sure the kids can't get their hands on the guns because they're designed to be more safe. Okay. Now there's only one problem with all this. Mm-hmm. Since those laws were passed, Massachusetts ranks second or third in the country in terms of the least amount of gun violence, the least amount Mm -hmm. gun violence, meaning intentional injury, either against yourself or somebody else. Mm -hmm. Okay. That's what the word injury means. All right. In medical terms. So Massachusetts is one of the, if not the most safest state. Uh, before 1999, it also ranked down at the bottom. It was also the safest thing. Yeah, and that's what I was I was actually going to ask you that. So is the reason for Massachusetts' low instance of gun violence because of our laws or because we just don't have a, a huge gun culture here, so not a lot of people own guns? Much, much more of the latter. Okay. However, now you're going to get into one of the great issues in this whole gun thing. Okay. And that's the word own, because when we talk about own, do we mean legal or non-legal? And unfortunately, everybody always assumes that there's a difference, difference in terms of how people use guns. So the pro-gun crowd, you know, the gun rights people, they'll say, well, the Law-abiding citizens should be able to own a gun. Fine. 
And the other side says, yeah, the law-abiding citizens should be able to own a gun, but we want to make it more difficult for his gun to be grabbed by somebody who doesn't own a gun. Mm -hmm. Okay. All right. Now, back in 2014 or 2015, I interviewed 61 kids uh, between the ages of 14 and 17 who were in the youth jail in Western Mass. Mm Mm-hmm. These kids are in jail because they are hardened criminals. In Massachusetts, they go out of their way to try and keep kids from being incarcerated because they know it just makes them worse, mm-hmm. okay? And all kinds of alternate programs. What happens is that the ones who have really committed very serious crimes or have come into juvenile court again and again and again, eventually the judge says, okay, into the clink. So I interviewed 61 of these kids all of whom, by the way, knew that I was a gun guy because I'd sold guns to some of the uh, guys who worked in the jail. Mm -hmm. I'm also completely bilingual in Spanish, so I could interview the kids either way. And finally, there was no guard in the room when I interviewed these kids. I didn't publish this because to get a research project past the internal review board of the state corrections, particularly for kids, is a lifetime's work. So I didn't really care about that. Yeah. So I interviewed I had I had these kids to oh by the way, these kids were all in for serious crimes, usually drug related. Mm-hmm. And in most cases they had a gun when they were picked up too. Okay, fine. So I said I had two questions basically for these kids kids. Question number one was how difficult is it for you to get a gun? And they laughed. Mm-hmm. Okay. Question number two, why do you, why do you have a gun? Overwhelmingly, because I need to protect myself. Now, the average guy who would walk into my shop and, you know, pass the background checks, law abiding, yada, yada, yada. Yeah. He decided to buy, a, you know, an armed self-defense pistol like a Glock or a SIG, you know. If I asked him those same two questions, he would give me the same two answers. So what's the difference in terms of figuring out why people want guns? What's the difference between law-abiding and non-law-abiding? There is no difference. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah, there's a difference in terms of whether or not you can go into a gun shop and buy it as opposed to buying it in the street. But where the real issue here, if we're talking about a behavior is why do certain people decide to acquire a particular consumer product which has no use or value other than to injure yourself or someone else you can't use a handgun for anything else yeah and handguns are what cause gun violence i was going to ask so those those kids you spoke with then in um in the house of corrections I, I assume they didn't go into a gun shop like yours, pass a background no. test and buy it. So where did they get the guns? Who the hell knows where? I had a couple of guns stolen from me years ago. Okay. From my house. One of these guns showed up nine months later in Tennessee. It's, you know, guns are small. They're easily transportable. People often forget where they are. Okay. Mm-hmm. I had a woman call me up one day when I was, you know, when I was selling guns in my shop, she had a boyfriend, they were living together, yada, yada, yada. And, uh, 
he decided they split up but amicably, apparently, and he moved to Florida. She didn't want to go. And a few months after um, he left, she was kind of changing, you know, turning her mattress over, you know, in the double bed. And under the mattress, there was a gun. So she called him up in Florida. She said, you know, you left your gun here. He says, oh, yeah, well, why don't you just sell it? I don't care. So she brought the gun over to the shop and sold it to me. But it's not, you see, you got to understand something. And here's one of the big problems. What you said, right, when we first began talking, you said, you know, the gap between people who own guns and people who don't. Yeah. You walk into a gun shop, okay, and you're going to look at these guns and you're going to say, my God, these are fearsome things. Mm -hmm. That's what you're going to say. Yeah. Okay. It's impossible for you to put your brain into the head of somebody who walks into a gun shop and spends about as much time trying to think about the, you know, the wherewithal of gun ownership mm-hmm. as they spend deciding which lottery ticket to buy in the Cumberland Farms on their way to work. Mm-hmm. And this is the biggest issue between the two, you know, the gun owning versus the non-gun owning. People who own guns and have owned guns all their lives, and it's overwhelmingly a generational thing. Yeah. Okay. Attach no significance to this at all. If you're not in the in in the gun world in terms of how you grow up, you know, you're not you're not you just can't imagine and somebody can just say, oh, it's a gun. All right. Okay. Yeah, big deal. Yeah. But that's how most people who are gun owners feel about their guns. Yeah. So let me, let me ask you a question. There was a, a while ago, a few years back, I, uh, I started collecting this specific type of tropical fish, right? Oh, so, wow. Okay. Great. Yeah. 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 I so, sell many years ago. Oh, you did? I had a fish tank and all that stuff. Yeah. Got it. Yeah. Got it. So I was collecting discus. I don't know if you know them, but they're like, they're... <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I know what they are. Yeah, big, okay. beautiful fish, super expensive, yeah. pain in the ass yeah. to maintain. And right. it right. got to the point. Most of all, the maintenance is a pain in the ass, right? Exactly, 100%, 100%. And so it got to the point where every time I said, hey, I'm going to the fish store, my wife just saw you know dollar bills sprouting wings and flying out of her exactly. bank account. And so I I eventually dropped the, dropped the hobby, just had some other stuff going on. But let's just say, like, the federal government comes in and says, listen, these discus aren't safe. We, you can't trade them anymore. I, I'd be, you know, whatever. I'd, I'd be a little upset, but I wouldn't get so mad about, you know, the government kind of infringing on my right to buy a product. Why are right. guns so much more sensitive if people That's a don't- very good question. That's a very good question, particularly because there's, there's three different groups. Mm-hmm. Of gun owners, okay? There are gun owners who are totally casual in that there's always been a gun around the house, and there always is. They already never use it. They don't care about it, blah, blah, blah. Then there are gun owners who are collectors. I mean, who really just love to buy and hold and own as many guns, you know, okay? Mm-hmm. And they're collectors the same way that people are stamp collectors, right? They like, mm-hmm. just want to have a big collection. They play with them and they hold them, okay? Then there's a group, and I don't know how big each of these groups are, mm-hmm. who really kind of identify themselves in terms of their social activities as gun guys. 
They go to the range all the time. They're always hanging out with other gun people. You know, they're like the activists, and it's their life. It's what defines them, okay? These are the people who are the vociferous, you know, the ones who show up all the time, who get very angry if anybody talks about, you know, taking away their guns, because you're kind of taking away how they view themselves, okay? Mm-hmm. Now, the truth is that the way they view themselves is a purely social thing, but they like to give it a kind of, you know, real, you know, this is really important to me. I guess the only, the only, and this is not a very good parallel example, but, mm-hmm. you know, I think it'll work. Do you really care one rat's damn whether or not some people in this country are legally here or not? No, No, you don't. Right. But there are some people who are crazy about it. Yeah. Why? Why are they? Why, Why are you taking something which has nothing to do with the fabric of this country or the fabric of the society, Mm -hmm. and yet you talk to them and they'll tell you, Oh, yeah, oh, got to get rid of every one of them. Oh, yeah, we got to pick them all out. Oh, they're all welfare, they're all this, they're all that. It's not true. So how is it that there are people, you know, you talk about, you know, cognitive dissonance, you know, yeah. disconnect. There are people who really shape their lives based on, you know, some hard-held beliefs that have no basis in truth. And, and, you know, and, and there's been a number of good books written about this, you know, like uh, the black swan is one and there's others. And, and I don't know, you know, what it is, you know, why this kind of mentality infects certain gun owners, but it does. Yeah, it does. Yeah. And by the way, they also are always made to feel from all of the promotion by the gun industry that because they are gun owners, they are very special. They're very different. They are somehow, you know, it's kind of a, it's kind of like tribal marketing. Okay. Well, you're one of us, you belong to us. Other people aren't like us and they don't understand why we're so different and so unique and so this and so that. What I'm hearing so far is that typically if we take, again, if we just take Massachusetts, the instance of gun violence isn't so much because of the laws as it is just because people don't really own guns. There isn't as there aren't gun that culture. many guns. There aren't right. The yeah. number, the number of guns around is not what it is in, 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 in more what we call gun rich states. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. And then the second part of it is that gun ownership really, when you get down to it is more or less a hobby with just a lot of really big reasons for doing it. And yet we're having this debate. So, like why? Why are we? What's what's causing it? Is it just like? Is it the fact that there's right, just the only re- look, the, oh, the only reason? The only reason that there's a debate is that every once in a while there's a mass. Really, a, I don't mean a mass like three people getting killed. I mean yeah. twenty, twenty-five people getting killed. Yeah, and it's strung up. It really, you know, took place this year. Because there were three or four of these mass big shootings back to back. But if you look, if you do a, you go to Google and you uh, look, there's a web, Google has a website where you put in any 
search term, and they'll tell you how many people search that term, okay? You know, over the past six months. And people search on gun violence and guns. There'll be a tremendous spike for a couple of days, and then it goes right back down. Mm -hmm. So before the Las Vegas shooting, there was a pretty long period before that guy, you know, went up into the hotel. The number of searches on guns and gun violence on this guy was almost nothing. And then that happened and it spiked right up. And then, of course, within a week, fell right back down again. But what happened this year was that you had three or four of these things, you know, like one right after another. Mm-hmm. And it happened right around the time that the 2020 campaign was just beginning. So all of the Democrats, knowing that Democratic voters tend to be much more in favor of gun control than, you know, Republicans, seized on the issue. But you don't hear any of them talking about it now. They yeah. stopped talking about it. So it's almost like you, you see a mass shooting and I'm, and look, I'm definitely part of this group. When I see a mass shooting, especially one at a school, I think about my kids. I think about their right. safety. My kids come home after doing lockdown drills and they're scared. Right. And so for me, when I hear somebody bring that up, it, it hits a nerve with me. And on the same token, <laughs> my guess is on the Republican side of things it's very easy for them to sort of hit that nerve of, hey, they're coming for your guns. And right. so it, would you say then really the, the, the debate isn't really about gun violence in total, but it's really more about that they've just found a way to trigger people into reacting and voting a certain way. And that's why this debate exists more or less. Well, not only that, but it's the fact that it, that 2016 was the first time that a number of political contests seemed to turn on the Democrats raising in a very aggressive way the issue of guns. And what has changed in the debate is one thing and one thing only, and this is since 2014, okay, and that's a current a former mayor of New York City who single-handedly has put more money into the gun politics thing. I'm talking about Mike, you know, Mike Bloomberg, yeah. than the entire gun marketing manufacturing NRA group put together. He probably put up, he probably put up in 2016. Mm-hmm. He probably put up close to a hundred million dollars in money that went directly into either specific campaigns or into just general discussion about political, you know, the politics of guns. So, for the first time, the amount of money that's going into media and all this other stuff about gun control that is being done by the gun control side dwarfs what the other side always used to be able to do. You know, it used to be the thing of, well, the NRA's got so much power, they got so much money, blah, 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 blah. Well, compared to Bloomberg, they don't have squat. (laughs) Yeah. I was going to ask you about them too, because, you know, how, how good are they at keeping the dialogue pointed in their direction, so to speak? Well, you know, the 
right now they're probably broke. <laughs> mm-hmm. And it's not clear exactly why. Part of it is some very foolish business decisions that they made. And then they, you know, got into this whole thing with uh, Wayno buying himself some fancy suits and blah, 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 blah. Yeah. So the 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 reports of of their of their demise are greatly exaggerated by the way but they you know and what made them powerful in the past was not so much the money they gave out but that the other side didn't do anything you know they have they have they give out you know the millions of dollars that's not true as a matter of fact um they have about 14 or 15 reps in Congress, you know, both in the Senate and the House, who they consider their A-plus guys, okay? Mm-hmm. Those guys get between seven and ten grand apiece. You saw that thing yesterday where these Republicans tried to, you know, break break up this hearing, you know, the impeachment hearing? Yeah. One of the guys who is their number one guy is the number two person in now, Steve Scalise. Yeah. Okay? Scalise gets ten grand from them. But all the other Republicans get like one or two thousand dollars at the most. They're not giving out, you know, huge sums of money. And they don't need to. Because most of the people who vote pro gun, they have no they have to vote pro gun. Yeah. They live in areas that people own guns. So, you know, it's not you know, it's not the case that there's this, you know, this mega, you know, money machine, NRA, no, it's that the other side wasn't doing anything at all mm-hmm. in terms of, you know, creating a public narrative and a public discussion until Mike Bloomberg uh, decided to bankroll Shannon. And that happened in 2014. Yeah. Actually, 2000, 2015. Yeah. When, you know, when I started researching this, you know, my I I take a pretty cynical view, which is just try and follow the money and figure out. Right. You know. Oh where, no, that's not yeah. cynical. That's good researching. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. And 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 here's the and and the thing I discovered, which you just mentioned here, is that yeah, the NRA doesn't contribute a ton to Republican campaigns or to the. Right. The, it's a, in fact, it's a joke how little they contribute and, compared to the insurance industry. Okay. And, and neither. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely, and neither does the firearms industry on the whole. Right. Uh, uh, they, don't, yeah, they, they don't contribute squat. It's, it, it, you know, I mean, I keep, I always, you're absolutely right. And I've written a number of columns about this where they, uh, you know, oh my God, they're giving so much money. They give nothing. <laughs> oh, mm-hmm. It's nothing. <laughs> yeah. It's yeah. nickel and dime. Well, yeah, that's it. And then add that to the fact that, and you can correct me if I'm wrong here, but even in the state of Massachusetts, where obviously our, I would say our congressional delegation, definitely our senators, very anti-gun. Uh, state of Massachusetts employs people in gun manufacturing, so there's actually jobs being brought to the state for weapons manufacturing. Am I incorrect on that, or am I? Am I? No, you're to- you're, to- you're totally correct. And by the way, by the way, at one point when this whole thing was, you know, getting really hot and blah, blah, blah. A couple of the reporters for Huffington, I used to write a weekly column for Huffington. I did it for five years, six years. And so at one point, a couple of the reporters from Huffington came out here to see me. And they wanted to do uh, a big article on S&W, you know, Smith & Wesson. Yeah. 
And basically their approach was going to be, you know, here's this horrible company, you know, manufacturing these killing weapons, uh, blah, 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 blah. And I said, listen, guys, uh, I think you're really, you know, barking up the wrong tree. This is a city that, you know, is, you know, collapsed 30 years ago, Springfield. Mm -hmm. Smith happens to be one of the major manufacturing, you know, employers who's left who hasn't left town and you're talking about, you know, eight, 900 families who do very well because they're either the husband or the wife works for S and W and it pays a decent wage. And there's not a single person in this city who thinks of that company as anything other than, you know, supplying good jobs. And they, they, you know, these were two people from, I don't know where, you know, very liberal, young, you know, blah, blah. They just couldn't understand that. But that's the reality of the situation. Mm -hmm. Okay. They're not, there's no, there's nobody walking around Springfield saying, oh, we got to get rid of Smith and Wesson there. It's because of them that, you know, all the people are getting killed. No, no, it's a, you know, it, it, it's another industrial job, but you know, the, but again, this was not understood at all, and this whole issue of, you know, and of course, where, because there was no real public grassroots activity going on for gun control, the gun control people always made the NRA out to be this, you know, this, this real, you know, behemoth, you know, oh my God, it's because of them that we got gun violence. Wrong. Wrong. You know, again, just to kind of go cover what we've covered so far, like gun owners own their guns really because they like guns. There's right. the Second Amendment issue that's in there. The NRA isn't that big. Is there a gun problem? Is, do we have a gun problem or is it just, again, just like dueling marketing campaigns here? The standard line that you hear and the guy who started this, my friend David Hemingway at mm -hmm. uh, at the Harvard School of Public Health, mm -hmm. was we have a gun problem, a national gun crisis, that's the phrase that they use, mm -hmm. because we own 300 million guns, there's no other advanced country that has anywhere near that number, and that's the reason we have gun violence, okay? Mm -hmm. There's only one problem with that argument. In fact, what we have if you want to define the problem as too many injuries, okay, from guns, mm -hmm. okay, we have that problem not nationally. We have it in the South, okay? Mm -hmm. If you take the 13 Confederate states plus Maryland and Delaware, which were the two states that, although they didn't join the Confederacy, still had legal slavery in 1861. Mm-hmm. You take those 15 states and you pull the gun injury numbers out the you know, out of the national numbers, the rest of the 35 states have very little gun violence at all. There are exceptions. There are a couple of inner city hotspots, Detroit, mm -hmm. Chicago, LA, fine. But you get away from those three or four hotspots, okay? And other than these 15 states, it's amazing how nonviolent and law-abiding we are. 
And when you consider that in a lot of those states, particularly in the Midwest, there are a lot of guns. And then you look at the numbers of people who were injured with these guns, which is almost nothing. All of a sudden, this idea that more guns equals more violence, more injury breaks down. Yeah. And yet, this is not something you will ever hear from the gun control movement because they want people. They want to play on the fears that people have about guns because how else are they going to raise money? Yeah. And so what is the South getting wrong then? No, it's not what it's getting wrong. It's that that there's always been culturally a level of violence in the South. Look, I don't know the all the reasons for this for this culture which 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 uh, you know promotes violence. But for example, southern states are the only states where if you walk into the bedroom and you find your wife screwing some other guy and you go bang and you kill him, you get off. <laughs> That's not true in other states. Yeah. Yeah. We have, we have in Massachusetts, okay, if a doctor even suspects child abuse, it has to be reported. Yeah. But that's, that's violence. You know, you whack the kid on the side of the head, that's violence. Yeah. But people define violence differently depending on, you know, you know there are people who, if, you, if they slap the kid around and you say you're doing something violent, they say, no, I'm teaching them to behave. Mm-hmm. I actually have a theory on why the South is so violent. Oh, please tell me because I'm writing a book. I'm writing a book on it. Let me hear. All right, man. I got a chapter for you. So uh, let's see. Probably about like five or six years ago, I'd say, I started learning uh, Brazilian Portuguese, right? right. Yeah. So this is just what I do with my life. I collect tropical fish. I learn Brazilian Portuguese. and, And so I started to learn a lot about the culture of Brazil. And the okay. interesting thing about Brazil is Brazil and, and the South and the United States are very similar in the sense that they both were effectively slave states for a, a very long time. Yeah, they were. No, they were. Yeah. yeah. Okay. And right about the same time, they abolished slavery. And right. of course, both made some huge mistakes in terms of how they liberated the slaves and how they dealt with former slaves afterwards. The only right. difference is that Brazil didn't have a North Brazil sending troops down to right, exactly. to, to, exactly. to rebuild things and establish some sense of equality. But you right. still you still have this legacy of slavery that exists, and and part of that legacy is you almost have this sense that you inhabit this fortress in a way, and that there is a sort of a, a, a fortress of of legal law abiding citizens who are kept safe from these wild mobs that exist outside in the street everywhere. And, right. uh, and, and the way that we use it in the United States and to an extent, the way they use it in Brazil is, is the law is effectively constructed in a way to keep that structure intact. And right. so if you look at the self-defense laws in the South, for example, it's very much based on the fact that if and when you feel threatened, you can take violent action. Uh, a yeah, much well, let, let me tell you something. Let me yeah. tell you something. I actually, uh, I, I'm, I'm doing this book because of, you know, this whole issue of, you know, guns, murder, and, you know, and race and so forth. 
And in fact, much of the book comes is based on uh, the reading of hundreds of narratives that were collected in the 1930s of from former slaves. It's a mm-hmm. big collection. It's in the Library of Congress. It was done by WPA. And what this shows is exactly your point. That, first of all, violence was used in a very kind of almost, uh, you know, it was just it was to keep the slaves in line. Yep. Uh, and the reason for that is that most, most of the real slaves were in the cotton belt where you don't have a kind of regular daily farming. You have a very intense period of when the cotton has to be picked. So you've got to make sure they're out there working like crazy those days. Mm-hmm. And that's when you, you use the lash. Um, and then, of course, afterwards, you had reconstruction. And, oh, my God, we got these free blacks all over the place. We've got to keep them under control. Um, and so you're exactly right that, that much of the uh, – but, by the way, the real issue then is not is, is because you have it on both sides because most of the gun violence in the South is inner-city black-on-black violence. Mm-hmm. To be politically correct, the last thing anybody wants to do is, you know, pick out the South or pick out the racial thing within the South. But you're absolutely correct as to what as to what you're saying. Yeah, and and the other thing I'd bring up too to that point is that there has been a gun violence issue in the inner cities for decades. Oh yeah, and, of course. And but that has not been the center of the gun control debate. If you look at the correct again, you look at the majority of inner city violence. You're talking handguns, but what's the gun right. they're going after in gun control? It's the AR-15. And well, why? only again because that's what gets everybody crazy are these mass shootings. Well, a hundred percent. Actually, yeah, but actually, you know, in in Europe, the reason that there's no gun gun, the reason that when we passed our first gun law, which was 1934, mm-hmm. uh, that was the law which which basically said if you want to own a machine gun, you got to go through all kinds of licensing. Blah 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 yeah. blah 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 blah. Homer Cummings, who was the who was Roosevelt's um, attorney general, and he drafted the law. He wanted to make all handguns, he wanted to put them on the list too, and it was rejected, okay? But in Europe, when they passed all their gun control laws, which they did either just before or after World War II, mm-hmm. they copied our 1934 law, but they put handguns on those on those prohibited lists too. Mm-hmm. We did not. That's the yep. difference. Yep. It's that simple. It sounds to me like what we really have is, in a lot of cases is we have one particular area where gun violence is exceptionally high. Um, this happens to be an area that went through a huge cultural shift due to slavery and still bears a lot of the economic and social costs of that. And so what you have is to put it in as delicate terms as I can is you have a lot of scared white people who are worried about the folks from the inner city coming in and everything, everything changed in 1993 Mm -hmm. when you had the riots in Los Angeles after Rodney King. Yeah. The 1993 riot was the very first time that people were able to sit in front of their television sets and watch a riot while it was actually going on Uh because that was when video was first used. Okay, and the second night of that riot, a video crew in a helicopter 
showed live, it was happening while they were filming it. This poor guy, white guy who stopped his truck, four black guys came over, yanked him out of the truck, and beat him bloody in the street. Mm-hmm. And the next day, you couldn't buy a handgun in any gun shop in the United States. Yep. That's when the whole culture of self-defense and guns and all that stuff really took off because of how black, how whites who were now comfortably ensconced in the suburbs saw what was going on in the middle of LA mm-hmm. because they all said to themselves, Hey, I could be in a car at a stoplight as I drive through the city and three black guys will yank me out of my car and beat me up. Okay. Mm-hmm. And that was when this whole notion of violence and fear and the racial, you know, that's when it, that's when it all really, really changed in terms of how the gun industry began marketing product. I mean, they did it a little bit before that, but it was really, that was the great tipping point. Man, I wish I booked more than an hour with you, Mike. Well, if you want to do some more another time, I'm happy. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Well, I, I really appreciate you spending your time to talk to me. My pleasure. Uh, so I'll tell you, this conversation didn't go anywhere near the direction I thought it was going to go. And I'm not 100% sad about it because, you know, going into this month, I came in kind of in support of gun control. And now I'm not sure any of the measures I stood for would have actually done anything to improve the situation. Because if we look at the things you can do to have the most impact on gun crime, it's requiring background checks for gun sales done privately and at gun shows, because those are the ones that most often find their way into the black market. And it's not going to address mass shootings, which is the issue most of us cite when promoting gun control. And it's not going to do anything about suicides which comprise the vast majority of firearm deaths. And, you know, just like the motorcycle, you cannot convince people that a product that is dangerous to them is one they shouldn't buy. So what's more, it's not going to address the underlying issues behind the high level of violence in our society. And, you know, one of the things Mike said that really stood out at me is the fact that the gun problem is especially aggravated in the former Confederacy. And, you know, after we recorded the episode, I dug into the numbers to see how that theory pans out. And, you know, it turns out former slave states have a higher instance of gun homicides than other states in the Union, if you exclude suicide. So we're going to have to explore that issue as part of a larger look at racial justice here. You don't have to yell, but I just tackled guns and I'm not going to be doing that tonight. So we'll have to wait until later. Now, November is within spitting distance and we're going to be talking about the military. It occupies one of the largest slices of the federal budget. And yet we never really ask if we're getting our money's worth. So we're going to explore that idea starting with Dr. Lindsey Cohn of the U.S. Naval War College next week. Hope you'll join me for that. Um, before we sign off, I want to give a couple of shout-outs. First is, again, to Feller Tack for lending us their song, Natisford, for the podcast. And second is to my producer, Jason Putney, for helping me not sound like an idiot. Thank you so much, Jason. Uh, until the next, this is Dan Sally, signing off.